0: Hello everyone, this is Victoria with Simply Grand and welcome to Simply Grand's podcast. Simply Grand is all things fun for today's contemporary grandparents while honoring the ancestors. Thanks for tuning in. This week's podcast is brought to you by MIST, Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters. MIST has been an advocacy support group that has assisted families and persons dealing with incarceration and re-entry into the community in Kansas City, Missouri for over 10 years. This organization continues to be the lifeline for those who are seeking answers in dealing with the judicial system in regards to their loved one. Currently, MIST is raising funds to assist production of a virtual art show featuring artworks rendered by incarcerated artists and the inventory of their art is amazing. The show is coming soon, so please stay tuned for details. To make a financial contribution, you can visit misdkc.org, that's misdkc.org, or you can call 816-337-5876. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello to the Simply Grand audience and welcome to this week's episode. Today I speak with Dr. Anthony Labatt, Senior Library Information Specialist at UMKC and Dr. Delia Cook-Gillis. Professor of Africana Studies at University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg about the 1968 Kansas City uprising that took place after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in Memphis, Tennessee. And as we remember this Sunday, April 4th, being the date he was taken from us, let's also remember the tremendous work he and numerous of others did to tear down the walls of racism, inequality, and injustice and eternally grateful to all those in the Black community who continues to do the work today. Stay tuned. Hello, Anthony.
1: Hello, Victoria.
0: Hello. Welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm really glad to talk to you today about the Kansas City riots, that happened in 1968, right after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Mm-hmm. But before we get started, please go ahead and and introduce yourself.
1: All right, thank you very much. Um, so, so my name is uh, Dr. Anthony Labatt, and I am a senior library information specialist at the Labattie Special Collections at UMKC. Pretty much, that just means is I help researchers get where they're going. Pretty much, you send an email to a buddy, it, you send an email to me, you call a buddy, you're calling me, uh, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Um, I am also the uh, founder of a local music magazine, Diacritical Kansas City, where I serve as a writer and also as a podcast host. So uh, it's great to be on the other side of the mic. Uh-huh. Um, and um, oh, yes. I suppose I I began my research into the the 68 riots or or upright, will you, uh, in the spring of of 2018, uh, initially doing a case study on uh, language and unconscious bias in archival descriptions. And uh, my colleague, Sandy Rodriguez, and I presented that case study at the uh, Missouri Library Association in 2018. And then I reworked the study for a wider audience and presented that at the 2019 Educate, Organize, Advocate conference here in town. Um, So eventually the archives were approached by the Prospect Business Association for a new exhibit. And I became the curator of that exhibit. Um, There's a physical one in the Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center, um, which was another one of our uh, partners in the project. And now as of last month, there is a digital version of the exhibit up online with even more information. That's kind of what I do and at least what I've been up to in terms of what we're gonna be talking about today. (laughs)
0: Okay, I was going to ask you how you came to be the gatekeeper of all of this historical data that you have on the site. So, what by you collecting this information and researching it and and uh, learning the history about what happened in Kansas City uh, mm-hmm. right after the assassination? What struck out to you? What was most gripping um, to you about the um,
1: yeah? No, that's a phenomenal question. I um I guess what what initially drew me to the to the to the research and the work there was actually an exhibit at the time in the library and it was the prospect business association that came to us and said hey there's some pro-police bias in this exhibit that that y'all really need to check out and I I was a student I was a graduate assistant at the time working in special collections and so I went down there right away and I just started taking notes I didn't know what they were going to be for (laughs) I didn't know uh I just had questions. Right. And the more I read, the more I experienced that that exhibit, the more questions I had, the more that just did, you know, I got to find out more for myself. And so I'm lucky in that Lebuddy is home to the 1968 Riot collection, which is comprised mainly of the manuscripts material for a book written by uh, Robert Bechtel. Uh, called uh, social history of a riot, and in addition to that, there are a ton of oral histories and interviews from people that were in and around uh, there at the time. People like uh, Herman A. Johnson, the then chapter president of the Kansas City NAACP, uh, Lucille Blueford, James Haslett, the superintendent, uh, Alvin Brooks, uh, John L. Frazier. There's all sorts of people in there, and so the more that I read the more inconsistencies I found in the storytelling of that original exhibit. And the more I wanted to research and figure out exactly what happened for myself. Um, okay. So let thing... me stop you right
0: there. Let yeah, go ahead. ahead. Don't mind because that the word inconsistencies uh, causes my uh, eyebrow to be raised. What right. Of inconsistencies, or maybe you were going to allude to that, but
1: yeah, ahead. well, for, as an example, um, one of the inconsistencies that you can find sometimes in language is just in how it's characterized can completely change the nature of how an event is viewed. So there was a sentence, for example, in in the exhibit that said that uh, police were were there to make sure that to, to keep people from becoming violent, I believe was the exact word. It's, the Police were there to keep people from becoming violent. And the people they were talking about at the time was a group of high school students and uh, a couple of civic leaders. Uh, the, in reality, the police had been there the entire time. Uh, the police had always been uh, at schools before school started, when schools got out. They were there the entire time. So they weren't necessarily there to keep things From turning violent as they were there to monitor um, by saying, keep things from turning violent, you're implying that this is an inherently violent crowd. So that to me is an inconsistency that doesn't necessarily characterize what we know to have been going on at that at that time, which was a peaceful march. You know, there are there are also other things like uh, the use of outdated terms uh, that that's quite an in- inconsistency. Uh, at one point you had people being referred to as a militant, black militant specifically, which is a term that uh, pretty much arose directly uh, around the same time as the civil rights movement began to kick up and, and bring up PACE. And it fell just right around after uh, Richard Nixon's law and order campaign, too. So we know that these terms were created as racially motivated terms as well. So to see them used in a historical context is, again, an inconsistent use of that term.
0: Now, when I was watching a YouTube video, it's only 12 minutes, of WHB's News coverage of that time. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've seen that, know about it. Um, They used, they kept using the words um, "ghetto" and um, uh, "blacks." Basically, blacks used the King assassination as an excuse for lawlessness, and Mm. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's so right what you're saying—the inconsistencies and the bias that was used to create that narrative that, oh my God, these are these Black kids who are uh, uh, destroying the community and all like that. And It's yeah. just so irritating and it's so tiring because you know what, Anthony? We still hear that same, those same type of words today. It may be uh, different, but it still has the same type of meaning. You know, to so create that, uh, that eyebrow raise, like oh, it's just these Blacks who's choosing to destroy the community exactly. instead of looking at the actual event that occurred. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, exactly. It negates the context of the situation too, right? Right. To so just go ahead and say that people were being violent for no reason completely ignores the fact, at least in the in the case of 1968, that the police were the ones uh, to start the violence in the first place. Um, and when you see people d- demonizing entire communities like that, then uh Pretty much, you're right about the the language really not changing from then to now. You'll see property really valued more than people. They'll be like, "Oh, they're just destroying everything and all this other stuff." But to 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 ignore to ignore why that stuff happens, to ignore the context of that situation is to be disingenuous, and you're not really giving an adequate. description of what's going on because this isn't just indiscriminate violence it's not it and that's why i I sometimes take up a little bit of an issue with the term riot when we talk about this event too because riot is quote indiscriminate damage right and we know this started off as a protest right Uh as a not even as a protest as a memorial march Uh you know so so th- that that doesn't necessarily equate but you're absolutely right we're seeing a lot of this sensationalized language that makes people with real uh like v- like valid and this 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 these these painfully true uh held it, beliefs and experiences it makes them out to just be criminal and that's not the case
0: Absolutely Now speaking of sensationalism Talk about when the tear gas was used. I know that there were some um, concerns as to why tear gas was used. What, What was the purpose behind that? If this was starting out as a peaceful protest in honor of Dr. King?
1: Well, I'll say this, that eyes were on these kids days before april the 9th when they started marching so i guess let me start with the actual tear gas thing so police were there at city hall they didn't just have tear gas on them right they had billy clubs they had rifles they had dogs with them gas masks uh they also had uh i, I think i said rifles too i think they call them riot guns at the time they were fully prepared there's a reason for that because they were planning on using those things. I, I mean, not, I don't want to say I don't want to characterize or sensationalize myself by saying they were planning on using those things, but I think or they you were just ready too. Uh, things just from the <laughs> not
0: to be used. I mean, right. I participated in protests myself. I understand. I understand it
1: fully. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, and they. So the other thing too is I, I was saying before, uh, even as well, like they had police cars at schools before and after school because uh of like gatherings that would take place there anyway there was actually a helicopter also following kids on that march uh and watching them from above confirming that they were nonviolent. so when the tear gas dropped i believe i believe my opinion is that that is an overreaction that they were just waiting for the right sort of impetus and and what happened was that a pot bottle was thrown over the police line. Apparently, it hit an officer in the foot, and according to Sergeant Robert Arndt, uh, at the time, Tactical Alert Phase 2 was immediately implemented only five minutes after that happened. And Tactical Alert Phase 2 is is a complete mobilization of the police force, and Uh you don't just get that done in five minutes. You have to have that ready to go. (laughs) You know, so yeah
0: so that was the beginning of what uh the 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 next days um, right. turned out to be right
1: yeah that that really was the uh yeah there was a spark that was it
0: okay now tell me why the mayor made the decision not to close schools.
1: Uh yeah, so uh that was actually up to James Hazlitt, the superintendent of the Kansas City, Missouri Public Schools. Now, he at the time was in New York City. Uh, so he wasn't there when Dr. King was assassinated. He was making all of these decisions uh from New York City. And so okay. he was going through kind of a, a proxy uh to get messages across, but there were meetings held because Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools decided to close that day. Uh, Mr. Hazlitt said, no, we can't do that. Um, the notion was held among the people who made the decision that if they closed schools, it would make it easier for students to get together and what they called like there would be more of a chance for troubles. Uh, On the other hand, you had several black civic leaders that were in those meetings saying do like you have to close schools. It's going to be harder for these kids to get together, you know, because we didn't we didn't have iPhones back then or anything like that. If everybody wasn't in the same place, it would have been harder to get together that, you know, maybe they would have felt a little bit more respect for the occasion as well and wouldn't have needed to go out and uh, quote unquote cause trouble in the first place. But uh, James Haslett. Because of that, decided to make the decision to keep schools open, and then instead name a newly made school on uh, Indiana Avenue, name it after Dr. King instead, and fly flags at half mast and such. They thought that would be a safer option. But again, okay. that was a, that was against the recommendations of Black leaders at the time. Mm-hmm. But students
0: ended up leaving classes anyway. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it was a lot easier to do that too. You know, you're all in the same place. You all look at each other and say, what am I doing here? You know, Kansas city, Kansas, they got, they got schools that are closed. What am I doing here? And kids left, I believe it was Lincoln first and then made their way to central. I don't think they had to do anything but stand outside in the crowd to get more kids to join them. You know, I think it was a lot easier for the students to organize uh, because schools were open.
0: Okay. And so now it's a full-blown chaotic scene.
1: Yeah.
0: People are getting getting killed. Um, How many ended up losing their lives because of those events?
1: Um, Well, a lot of the lives lost happened after Uh, that first day at City Hall. Um, There were six total lives lost. Uh, Those are Maynard Gough, Julius Hamilton, Charles Martin, Albert Miller, and then George McKinney Sr. and George McKinney Jr. Four of those uh, folks lost their lives at the Byron Hotel shootings. Um, Maynard Gough, I'm not sure. Uh, All I know is that he was killed by police. Uh, Julius Hamilton was killed inside of his own home, uh, shot in the back uh, from oh. a policeman that was standing outside
2: of the what? Building.
1: Yeah, there's actually, this doesn't appear in a lot of the, in the collection materials, but due to some other of my archival research, I was able to actually find a, uh, a, a public hearing report um, that Leona Hamilton, Julius Hamilton's uh, wife, uh actually called for this public hearing and investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death uh so the evidence that they had gathered directly contradiction contradicted the initial report made by the officer who shot hamilton uh and due to what they called sovereign immunity at the time which is now called qualified immunity pretty mm-hmm. much does mm-hmm. the same thing says that no action really could be taken or it's very difficult to have action taken against uh uh, an officer for for something like this to happen, but a lot of those a lot of those de- everybody who was killed was was killed by police uh, for for trying to flee from the shooting at the Byron Hotel.
0: And where was the Byron Hotel located at the time?
1: Uh, the Byron Hotel. Let me rack my brain. This is at 30th and Prospect. Byron Hotel is at 30. It, it no longer exists there. Mm-hmm, um, right. But yeah, it was a, at the time it was called an area of high activity. This area around the thirties and prospect, the prospect corridor was the area that that's where really all of the, the fires, the, the, uh, the damage, the looting, the, you know, the, the fire and fury that everybody talks about in terms of the, the riotous activity. That's where all of that happened. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so, so Byron hotel was right there on 30th prospect. There was a grocery store across the street. Um, what had happened the night of April the 10th, the the day of the shootings, at that point, the National Guard had been called in by uh, the governor. Um, And a National Guardsman, uh, William Jewett, was struck in the arm by a bullet. Now, there have been reports of sniper fire all around the city, but that is not uncommon in terms of these circumstances, you see the same types of reports happening in Detroit in 1967, 68, Chicago. Uh, sniper fire is always something that's su- supposedly around. V- very little of it coming uh, in this case uh, w- was not confirmed. The only two people arrested for, for sniper fire were two white men um, at this time. So there was that fear in the air. Mr. Jewett was struck by a bullet. He couldn't tell where it came from but he he said it it could be coming from that area over by the Byron Hotel across the street so what police and guardsmen then decided to do was to shoot out all the street lights and then continue to pepper the building and the surrounding area with quote unquote return fire uh, and that's when a lot of the people were killed
0: now the tactics that the police used during the uprising was it? I know other cities. Were they modeling other cities by chance? Because I mean, that
1: is some. How do? You, how would you know to do that? Right. It's you know. I I, I have to confess. I'm not entirely sure. Um, what. What I do know is that, and this is in the mayor's commission as well. So one of the things that the mayor's commission strongly advocated for was for local control of the police. And they cited that the state government having control over the police was a major factor in the amount of uh, uh, destruction and, and, and violence that did take place. So I'm not sure if they were taking cues, but I mean, after 1967, when you had things like Watts going on, you know, and, 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 also Detroit and all these other scenarios, I think that police sort of develop their own. Ta- I don't know if it's, if it's a tactic, it, it, to me, it all just looks like a hammer, you know, just a single, that's the tactic is, is force, you know, protect mm-hmm. buildings and shut people down. Huh? And so I'm not sure if there was any coordination between police departments Um, between cities uh, at all. But uh, I do know that the mayor's commission did cite local control over the police force uh, or not having local control over the police force as a factor in what went down.
0: Okay. So how did, how did things eventually calm down and were there investigations uh, thereafter?
1: Yeah. So, uh things it was really kind of like a very slow dwindle. You had a, most of the most of everything happen, happened April 9th and 10th. And so by by the 11th of April, most of the activity had dwindled. You weren't getting calls every 2 minutes, every 1 minute actually. I've listened to a lot of hours of police dispatch and it's it's almost every 30 seconds they were getting a call. Um but all of that had dwindled um city council passed an ordinance on april 11th that allowed for uh any fines or jail time from curfew breakers uh caught out to be waived and aside from a few uh reports of violence that were unsubstantiated there was really nothing uh going on around everything had kind of dwindled by april the 11th so um i know that the mayor's commi- mayor had a commission uh that that came out um, it was about 50 years ago uh, to that day where they really tried to go in and figure out exactly what happened and figured out how to fix it. Um, and there's actually a wonderful article uh, in the Kansas City Star about, well, okay, whatever the, did the, based on that investigation, have we have we met any of those recommendations? And the answer is no. Um, the commission cited that uh, that they needed to add more police officers because police officers were so underfunded that I'm I'm not sure about that, but (laughs) they also actually cited, uh, adding more black police officers or police officers from the community to work in the community. And even today, Kansas city has a population of about, uh, 30%, uh, black, only 12% is represented in the police force. Mm Of
0: course, of course um so you mentioned about uh those who were arrested
1: mm-hmm.
0: and had to find that those fines were uh, uh were made to go away because i know that joseph teasdale who mm-hmm. was the prosecutor at the time was saying he was the bail he's gonna put bail at fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars and it's a lot that's a lot of money now yeah now. so i can imagine that's a whole heck of a lot of money back then yeah no kidding so, do you have any insight about
1: that um none none too much about the the legal procedures what what i know is just about the the curfew breaking and or, or i guess the arrest that word made a lot of them were made for breaking curfew which keep in mind this is uh the first time a curfew has ever been instated in kansas city history right oh, okay. um there were somewhere around maybe a little under 300 arrests made over the course of those two and a half days. So it was a lot of people. And really what ended up happening is that people were arrested. They were brought to either a, a precinct or an or an outpost station. And um, at the time uh, there, there was the group uh, Micah, the uh, Metropolitan Interchurch Agency who would send out teams of uh, social workers, lawyers and uh clergy to these police outposts to check on the, check on people and make sure they had a way to go home or a place to go to after that and that they were being adequately uh represented as well so um and I think I actually uh, misspoke actually on the the ordinance though the ordinance allowed four fines in jail time for any curfew breaker caught out after April eleventh so
0: yeah. yeah okay well uh coming up on the second half of the show Anthony I'll be speaking with Dr Delia Gillis who is the professor of history and Africana studies at UCM yeah. in Warrensburg yeah about the riots as well and one of the questions I'll be asking her is what impact did Dr, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. have on her life so I'll ask you the same question because when it's all said and done, the community was just devastated when Martin Luther King was assassinated. You know, the 60s was such a tumultuous, tumultuous mm-hmm. year anyway. You know, Megan Evers, Malcolm X, John F. Kennedy, the, the uh, little girls in Birmingham. Um, and the list goes on and on. So the community was just broken. And then two months later, Anthony, uh, Robert Kennedy <laughs> yeah. gets assassinated. So, you know, the 60s was just uh, crazy. So I understand, you know, that impact and that hurt and devastation that the community was feeling and really from when uh, Martin Luther King died. So uh, by you researching this, absorbing the events, going back to that time period, what impact did King have on you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, I'll say this. Researching these events has... Uh, there, there's just a very old, heavy grief, I think, that we as a community have felt around these events. And for me, growing up, um, there was the, the stories that I heard in school And there was a stories I heard out of school of Dr. King and what I, that impact that he had on me was not only uh, the, the patience to understand a situation, but also the courage to do something about it and to, to hold your convictions, but also the courage to resituate yourself as well and we know that right around the time he was assassinated what did he start talking about the vietnam war he started talking about the rights of union workers things that we're still talking about uh, in terms of equity and and pay and everything like that the resonance of the scope of his knowledge i i feel the loss of that leader still today too but so incredibly inspired by the amount of determination and grace and patience with which he conducted that work and I can only hope to emulate that sort of eloquence and drive and discipline in my own
0: Wow, well said well said, Uh, thank Thank you so
1: much (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness
0: (laughs) 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 Well, Anthony, this has been such a lively discussion. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that I got a hold of you. I found you uh, just by calling, uh, looking for people to come on the show to talk about uh, um, the upcoming uh, anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination on April 4th, uh, which will be next Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you so much. And if folks want to look at the collection, uh, what is the web address?
1: Right, you can go to uh, library.unkc.edu backslash exhibits backslash uprising, and that'll take you directly to the digital exhibit of the uh, of the collection. And in there, you'll find. Uh, more resources you'll actually find the link to the collection the link to all of the photographs that we have on the collection which are which you will recognize from other things like videos and articles and stuff a lot of those come from us Um, lectures and and all of that Um, and yeah I just wanted to say thank you for having me as well and it's been a pleasure to talk to you
0: oh thank you thank you and uh, you take care and if there's anything else um, that will be coming up uh, from UMKC uh, about any historical significance in this city or what have you. Please keep me posted.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, Anthony, thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Dr. Gillis. I'm well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. <laughs> thank you so much uh, for coming on the Simply Grand podcast. I truly appreciate your time. And before we get started, I wanted to introduce you. You are a professor of history and founding director of the Center of Africana Studies at the University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg, Missouri, and the fall 2019 faculty director of the Missouri Africa program, which is MAP, at the University of Ghana in Legon. In addition, you are an author of Kansas City, a photographic history published by Arcadia's Black America series. And you also was a consultant on the exposition review team for the eight days in April, Race, Rebellion, and Reconciliation at UMKC. Did I get all that right? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) You know, in the first segment of the show, I interviewed someone you know, Dr. Anthony Labatt, who is the Senior Library Specialist um, at uh, UMKC. And we yeah. discussed the uh, collection that he has in regards to the 1968 riot in Kansas City. I'm sure you are aware of it,
2: right? Yes, I am.
0: Good, good. So what I wanted to do is just take a, a tad bit different angle on uh, speaking with you about that uh, time period of April 4th, 1968. So can you tell me what was the racial climate like prior to the assassination on April 4th?
2: Well, I don't think that Kansas City um, differed in many ways from most urban uh, communities. Um, By the time we get to the late 1960s, you know, we've kind of taken a stab at desegregation. And all is not well in the land um, because we still have um, segregation by choice, even if the laws have changed. and we also have um, economic disparity. And so that was uh, the climate um, in uh, Kansas City in 1968. So like other communities around the nation, um, the loss of Dr. King would you know just ignite. What had um, been festering, and using Dr. King's uh, words, I always love the quote that you know, riot rebellion is is the 1968. Um, Kansas City was not unlike other urban areas where we had experienced um, some level of segregation, at least legally, but. Um, uh, desegregation legally, but segregation exists um, out of tradition and and choice as well as the economic disparities and so um dr. King's assassination was such a traumatic experience um to the african American community and to the nation um that you know it lit um the flame you know of a, of a festering situation and I love dr. King's own words when he talks about how a uh a, a riot is the voice of the voiceless. And and that's what took place in 1968 in Kansas City, though we had, had made great strides in some areas of um, life in Kansas City. The African-American community at large was um, not impacted in a positive way from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there were thriving businesses on 18th Vine, and such. Uh, Black owned businesses for a while. So when that happened, um, it was like your soul just left your body. Your heart was just broke. You know what I mean? Well, it, so... it, was,
2: it was extremely traumatic. I just always remember was like a high school, she was in high school when when John F. Kennedy was assassinated and she just remembered being ex- at school and just breaking down and crying and how it impacted. And so that was the thing with, with Dr. King. Um, what what we have to realize that, you know, African American people are a community or a village by virtue of our African um, ancestral roots, as well as our experience in the nation. So when one person experiences something, especially when it's negative, it impacts us all. And I think when we look at how the politics of respectability has worked in um, the African-American experience, uh, just like with President Obama, when you're talking about we're sending you the best of us, we're playing by the rules of this nation, we're we're educated, we're articulate, we have um, strong families, we're doing everything that this society says that we need to do in order to overcome the badge of slavery or enslavement that had been um, forced upon us. And when you have someone like um, Dr. King, who's assassinated, it just rips at the whole fiber of, is there any justice or is it just us? Um, And so I, so it hit that, it struck that particular nerve. And especially since he was working on behalf of the working class of sanitation uh, workers, um, you know, the least of us. And the fact that he was taken from us in that manner um, was tragic, it was traumatizing, and the response was really appropriate.
0: After the assassination I'm deviating a little bit, but after the assassination after the assassination and what have you, not just in Kansas City, but all over the country it seems like there was not a leader to that degree that rose up after uh, Mm -hmm. his death. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Can you sound on that a bit?
2: Well, those are the pitfalls of charismatic leadership, but you also have to understand that we did have a lot of leaders in our community, and either they were assassinated, like um, Dr. King or Malcolm X, or even young leaders like Fred Hampton. And so there had been so much subversive activity going on to um, sow seeds of um, discord among African-American leaders, and as well as those leaders that were reaching across the aisle to other uh, groups to create a powerful coalition. Those that had the power made sure that that would not um, be the case. And, you know, um, Dr. King only comes once in a lifetime. Um, I'm teaching a class right now on the life of Chadwick Boseman and the richness of his life and having him having us lose him uh, so soon. And so it just was um, the wrong time in terms of um, the movement and um, bowing, you know, the movement bowing to the pressures of the powers that be.
0: When you talked about segregation by choice, that really struck me. <laughs> that that term really struck out at me, and uh, the economic disparity that was happening in the country and in Kansas City at the time. Um, what what did you mean by segregation of choice or segregation by choice?
2: Well, I'm gonna give you an internet back to it. I had the pleasure of um, teaching in South Africa in the fall of 96. And President Mandela was um, president. And so I was free to move about the country. So I was living in one of the most exclusive suburbs, Camps Bay. Yet all of my friends and associates lived in the townships. And so even though the country allowed you to uh, move about, people chose to stay in their communities because that's where their families were and they could not afford to move other places. So even though apartheid had been dismantled, the communities still look the same. And so that is no different um, for us here in the United States during this period is that you may not have had the economic Um, viability to move someplace else if you chose, you also may have chose to stay within your communities. One of the things that we often don't do a good job of when we speak about the civil rights movement, some of us study one side or the other, but looking at both sides of the coin of the vibrant neighborhoods like 18th and Vine um, District and others where people lived very sheltered lives in terms of the vibrancy of their community and not having to interact with the larger um, white community. And so while segregation existed, it may not have been something that people dealt with on a day to day basis. At the same time, um, you begin to see communities change um, in, the Kansas City area after Brown versus Board of Education, because those families, those white families refused to desegregate, so they, they fled. They fled and, and, and there is work done um, on those years where that's why the Kansas City School District, its foundation after desegregation has been flawed from the beginning. Um, it's been a um, victim of the fact that there's not been a tax base and those who make the decisions are not necessarily ones that have children in the district. It goes back to this period where um, people left the district um, because of race. They did not want to educate their uh, children with black and, black and brown um, students. Obviously they would argue and, and, and the conscious choice was, you know, I just want something that's good for my student. We all do, but the heart of the matter was um, the desegregation issue. So some of that is by choice, that people are choosing to make those decisions, whether they're Black or white, to stay or remain um, in communities. And then there are others that are simply trapped and cannot make another choice.
0: You also mentioned economic disparity. Uh, and Going back to the riots that happened um, in 1968, uh, I. I know that a lot of buildings and stores that were in that core, urban core of like 30th and Prospect, Mm -hmm. 30 up to 39th and Prospect and East to Indiana were burned Mm -hmm. and what have you. And to this day, I know they're revitalizing Prospect per se and is looking better, but it seems as though, because my dad told me, I was only five months old at 68, Mm -hmm. that those stores that were there were never rebuilt. And so it's just been... I hate to use the word eyesore, but it, so much can still be done to those areas um, because of it's just nothing there, really.
2: Um, well, that takes investment. And um, you also have to look at the period now where most mom and pop businesses Um, small businesses struggle anyway because you're competing with the the chains, the Walmarts, the targets, et cetera. So I think when in 2021, it's a more complicated issue in terms of that redevelopment, um, in terms of governmental policies and investment. Um, It could be what um, we we have to understand that part of the success of African-American business is owed to segregation. So talk about um, taking lemons and making lemonade out of it um, because you had a homogeneous market and you didn't have other options. And so now that we have so many options and now that we do not have a homogeneous um, economically viable community, um, we cannot necessarily recreate um, that glorious past. Um, Actually my PhD um, dissertation advisor, Dr. Robert Weems, is the expert on African-American business. And, you know, in his work, there has never been the same heyday for African-American businesses as it was during segregation in the 40s and 50s. Okay. So what do you think about, let's
0: a So what do you think about the uh, recent laws that were passed in Georgia, King's home like states, that has now limited voting and, and now it's illegal to hand out water and food as voters stand in line to vote. I call it Jim Crow Jr. So, yeah. uh,
2: so what is the question?
0: What do you think about the laws that were just passed in Georgia?
2: First reaction, not surprise. Um, the struggle continues. Um, and just different forms of um, the constri- of those that have power that will use whatever mechanisms that they have in place to maintain that power. Uh, it reminded me of a, um, a few years back in um, South Florida where there were church members giving out food to the homeless, and they, they banned them from being able to, to do that so when you have the power you lo- you use those uh legal mechanisms and sometimes extra legal measures to maintain that power so I wasn't surprised um and that's a shame that you're not surprised um but I was not and I know that the good folks in Georgia will stay in good trouble and challenge those um they will find a way to work around that that is the beauty and legacy of the african-american experience we will work around it we will if we cannot scale the mountain we will go around we will build a bridge we will do what needs to be done um because um we have to Yes, we
0: have to we have to and i've been already thinking you know, because we know it's coming to Missouri. Sure. Um, and 42 other states have, are trying to pass similar laws. So we know it's coming. Mm-hmm. So you're right about us knowing how to maneuver and get around things to uh, do what we have to do is, you know, that's very, as a very common statement in our community. Right.
2: I mean, when, when they challenge souls to the polls, I mean, scandalous, you know, a congregation going. But no, you, you won't give us food and drink. Well, we will come up with um, snack packs and you can have it when you go in line. We will do what needs to be done.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you talk about the uh, powers that be, you know, this week is the uh, beginning of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Chauvin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, disgusting office on uh, Mr. George's snack in, in Minnesota causing him to die. What does it say about this country, Dr. Gillis, about um, the same fights we're still dealing with? You talked about the struggle with dealing with the same issues, you know, in the past as we've been on these shores, but uh, particularly the 60s, like from the 60s to now.
2: Okay, I'm sorry. I think you went out on me. Um, um You know, Again, the George Floyd case is simply um endemic and just um consistent with the racialized violence and terror that um, people of color, especially African Americans, have faced and you know we just really have to understand the structure of it. We have to understand the historic um nature of that injustice. And that it is systemic. It is in the laws. It is in the laws, and it is in uh, the education and it is in our socialization and this culture. Um, part of um, what I think is important for us to think about is not only how people of color and African Americans specifically we write about this history of the trauma, But I think it's very important for us to look at the larger population and understand how they have been brainwashed, if you will, and able to sit there and watch it and have no feeling. Because the whole process is really about humanizing African-American people or Asian-American people who are under such attack at the moment. It's about humanizing us to a larger population. And so I think that is why the George Floyd um, murder um, um, is very compelling in the story of the moment because a larger group of Americans saw what happened and they felt it and they saw it. And they had an opportunity to process it and make a decision for themselves and their future generations, if which side of history that they wanted to be on. Um, as as many leaders said, you know, when he was calling for his mother, it touched the heart of all mothers in this country. Um, and so I think that's the sad truth that in the ways in which African Americans have been dehumanized from when we were first traded um, into the slave trade, we were enslaved to, through the um, horrendous um, experiences um, under slavery and segregation, it took place because the larger population could turn a blind eye. Not to say that there have not always been supporters and allies and those who fought against it, but the vast majority were also traumatized because you have to think about when those beatings took place on um slave plantations um the lynchings um women and children were in the audience it it was a spectacle when i teach about it i remind my students well you know it was like going to a, a rest it was an event and so you you had to develop a thick um skin um they were also socialized to fear being ostracized by their communities because to step up and do the right thing uh to do the merciful thing would meant would mean that they would be an outcast and also subject to the same treatment we have we have to dismantle that we really have to that that's part of the work that is before us that's
0: very heavy. wow yeah it seems like we've been just been on a continuum of traumatic experiences it's
2: performative violence it keeps everyone in their places because to move um and to move will really be a disruption
0: <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> okay dr gillis as we wind down our time um tell me what influence did you have on your life? You
2: know, I thought about that question. And so growing up, actually, I'm gonna to have to say it was not Dr. King, if we look at the leaders, um, I would say Malcolm X. But before I respond to that, I have to say it's the grandparents. I grew up in an inter- intergenerational household, always living with grandparents and great grandparents in generations. So in terms of my formative years, um, that's what has impacted me the most and made me the person that I am. Um, but if we think about Dr. Okay. King, he, his influence um, in my teaching has to do with the fact that I always have to teach um, against a very narrow base of knowledge, uh, just like with Mark, Malcolm, I'm sorry, Malcolm X. Um, Dr. King becomes this, I have a dream, Dr. King, And there is the revolutionary Dr. King, the Dr. King who was speaking out on the Vietnam War, um, the Dr. King who was leading, you know, working on the Poor People's Campaign and fighting for um, working class people and the living wage. But I also love the Dr. King, the young leader, Dr. King in Montgomery, that he was in his twenties. And um, because he stepped into his purpose um, at that moment, helped a lot by, Um, Montgomery um, leaders, uh, pastors who didn't want to be in trouble in case this thing didn't go the right way. And so that opened up a leadership opportunity for Dr. King. But at the same time, I have to teach, you know, my students that um, though he was a charismatic leader, it was a whole structure. It was a whole organization on the role that women played um, in the Montgomery bus um, boycott. We just think about Dr. King, um, all the people that helped to organize and get us to the March on Washington, whether that's A. Philip Randolph or or Bayard Rustin. And so there's a whole host of leaders um, and different types of leaders. And again, I, I focus on that that woman quite the one the question of women in the role because the men may have led, but it was the women that organized, that did the work of organizing. And we see that so splendidly today. Um, in Stacey Abrams, for example, she is the representation of that. She didn't get the figurehead position, but she did the real work that changed that turned the tables. And so that's how you know I teach and am impacted by Dr. King, is that um because he's known and I want him to be more than that day um in the um year where we have, you know, different sales on Martin Luther King Day, um, that we think about. Um, the breath of what he was able to do in such a short time.
0: Oh, how wonderfully said. Oh, my goodness. So beautifully said. Thank you so much. Oh, Dr. Gillis, I truly, truly, truly thank you um, for your time. Today. Oh, you're this welcome. you um, Oh, sure, sure, sure. Any lasting words before um I sign off. Um,
2: I would just say um, bec- because of your audience that, you know, we really just want to keep that connection going with our generations because there is such a loss of um, the intellect and the stories in our history between the generations. And as someone who's, you know, I'm a civil rights baby born in, in 1965. I'm a part of that first group of us who had the opportunity to enter into those doors And but we now have generations that are coming up that don't necessarily have that connection. So I think um, I think our elders and I just hope that we're going to do a better job or continue to do the work that we have been doing uh, with our young people. We have some really bright stars on the horizon, but we want to make sure that that um, that the chain is um, not broken in terms of what we've got to do moving forward. And we'll not be broken. We'll, we'll take Georgia. We'll be fine. Georgia will be fine. <laughs> we've got we've, we've got good people in Georgia, and I just love uh, the the work that Charles Blow is doing and and planting the seed in our mind that of the reverse migration. That you yes. know, if we're into states' rights, let's move someplace where we can change the balance of power. It's Georgia. Um, he believes it also could be Alabama. And personally, what I'm promoting um, both in my family community and the students that I teach is the world is our oyster, that we really need to look at opportunities in the diaspora. I work specifically with Ghana and Jamaica, among others, but I think we really need to look at um, the power of our passport and citizenship as Americans, but also our cultural identity as an African descended people, to find um, opportunities to work and live abroad with our brothers and sisters.
0: Oh my goodness! Well, you know what? I'll have to be sure. back for another thank discussion. Doctor Gillen. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Stay, Stay blessed. blessed. Bye bye. so much for tuning in to simply grand's podcast today make sure you tune in each thursday for new episodes and you can follow simply grand on facebook and instagram at simply grand grandparents see you next week